The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yo! Welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. I thank you for clicking on this episode and all the episodes that we have over here at House of L. Gotten a lot of feedback over the last couple of weeks. People really enjoy the episode with Paul Conrad, and I thought that the things that he had to say on there were really important. If you didn't listen to the Paul Conrad episode when you're done with this episode go back and listen to that episode people really enjoyed it and it was fun uh before i tell you about our guest on this this week i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna lean on you because i'm gonna need you for some stuff but i'm i'm working on a project that is so exciting to me i cannot wait you to see what the finished product is and honestly a lot of it is out of my hands at this point so I can't wait to see the final product too but when it comes out man I'm gonna do a whole couple of episodes on it and introduce you to the people that have helped me live out a dream that's as that's as specific as I can be for now and but that'll change in the next few weeks, so stay tuned to the House of L, and I can talk to you about some of my other creative pursuits. And I'm I'm going to pat myself on the back, Barry Horowitz style. I'm really proud of myself for allowing myself to do something different. And my hope is that it turns out as great as it feels to do. And even if it doesn't, I feel like I've gained valuable experience from it. But when it happens, there will be a whole set of episodes that will go along with the project. And I I will tell you that it's going to be a lot of fun. And I hope that it continues. I hope that I did good enough that it continues. Our guest this week is Wayne Drays. We'll get into that in a minute. He spent 20 years at ESPN. At, at the start of the pandemic, he was let go from ESPN, which is shocking because 
he's one of the best writers in the business. I'm sure that there is some sort of algorithm that allowed ESPN to do what they were doing because they were cost-cutting during the pandemic. But some of the stories that Wayne has written, his his catalog of stories is really incredible. To spend that amount of time kind of helping launch ESPN, the magazine, and the dot-com, and doing all of these incredible long-form stories that they could use for content in other ways. Like, you you write a story, and then you say, you know what, we can score this with some music and some video, and, and then you end up with Emmy Awards, like Wayne has. I so enjoy talking to him, and I think that you will enjoy listening to him talk about the business. He's great. And and I, I hope that whatever the next thing is for him, it is something that he wants. And I imagine that he will get to define it. The other part of this conversation, which I think is really noteworthy, is his love for the Cubs. And you will hear a man talk about the Cubs in a very serious way. Because... Wayne had to have open heart surgery, and he wasn't having to have surgery until the Cubs won the World Series. So you're going to hear us talking about that too. But we started off with his last name. Now, Wayne's last name is spelled D-R-E-H-S. I've heard people call him Drez. And I'm like, I don't... I'm not sure that's right, but I don't know. So I wanted to ask him, like, legit. I This is my thing. I ask people, how does your family say your name? Like, not how, how other people say it. I wonder how your family says it. Because I know that they will say it correctly. And I don't want nobody's mama or auntie or anything mad at me. So that's where we kick off the conversation. Me asking Wayne about the last name Dre's. And he gifted me with this. It's German. So the the entertaining family backstory briefly, my great-grandfather, our name was actually Dress, D-R-E-S-S. And he got made fun of in school for having a, you know, Dress is his last name. So he changed the name to D-R-E-H-S and something that nobody knows how to pronounce and made it a hell of a lot more complicated. Thank you, (laughs) great-great-grandfather. That's an awesome story, man. Awesome. Such a fan of your work. But I got to talk like the people on the podcast can't see what's going on in your background. And so I wanted to make mention. So you've got what? Three Emmys. Is that right? Yeah. mm -hmm. That's just I do. And they are in back of you for what is the most major flex background (laughs) that I've seen (laughs) when it comes to my podcast with your Jordan. So how many pairs of Jordans are back there? Uh, behind me, there are probably 20 or so, I guess. And I got a big box to my left. You can't see Lawrence. That's a huge Jordan, like wooden shoe box that got made for me that holds more of them. Yeah. 
I have a problem. So, so there is like I would say if if I were a psychology student, I would say that there is some significance to the fact that your Emmys are in the same place that your Jordans are. <laughs> probably, probably. I, uh, you know, I, as you know, I had open heart surgery in 2016, and when I was sitting on the couch recovering with nothing to do, stumbled into a pair of Jordans and bought them online, and that was the first pair that I bought since I was a kid. And in the whatever we are now, six years since, uh, I've become obsessed and take L's and the sneakers app like everybody else and film my, I mean, this used to be all like ESPN work stuff, and it's like, no, no, we're going to put the shoes there, because if you buy the shoes, you got to show them. So, yes. How many of them have you actually worn out of the house? Oh, I'd say all, I'd say three quarters. I'm not a, like, I don't do it like to invest and make money. I wear them because I love them and I love to show them. And, and most of them have some sort of a story with them. Um, you know, this, the, you, people can't see, but there's a yellow pair of, of dunks behind here. These are Dornbeckers that were made by a heart patient at the Children's Hospital in Oregon. And so they're yellow shoes and you got a red heart on the side and the stitching. And so like when I had my surgery, I was like, I had to get these and I ended up meeting the kid and doing a story on them. So a lot of them have very, very special meaning. That's cool, man. I, I, I Can we talk about the heart surgery? Yeah. Anything you want, man. Of course. So I, I think it was interesting that you, you waited, right? Isn't that what the story is? Like you were, yeah. You, you, why did you wait to have open heart surgery? What was it that, that you were delaying? Yeah. So um, I got a call in like, I would say it was August, September of 2016. Um, and there was a pretty good baseball season going on the north side of the city at that point. And, uh, you know, I grew up a, a diehard Cubs fan. My dad moved here from Cleveland. And so he automatically hated the White Sox. He was an Indians fan. So he just started cheering for the Cubs and introduced that to me. Um, and so, you know, my deal was I did not want to go. So, so basically long story short, I got the phone call. You need to come to the, to the Cleveland clinic. Uh, my doctor in Chicago had sent all my stuff to them to look at. And basically the idea was you need to come here as soon as you sort of can. And we got to do a pretty significant open heart surgery. And I, I just didn't want to go through October of 2016, uh, in a hospital bed or recovering on the couch, or I wanted to be able to enjoy that like a normal fan. And so, you know, I asked the nurse, I'm like, when you say now, like, you mean like tomorrow or like, can I, you know, and, and can I wait a month, a month and a half? And, and the answer was basically like, look, we don't think you're going to drop dead tomorrow, but we can't 100% guarantee that won't happen. Mm. So, um, so, you know, I talked to my wife about it and, and, you know, we kind of made the decision that we were going to sort of roll the dice and, uh, and watch the world series, you know, or, or watch the playoffs or follow the team through October as closely as we can. Um, and then I, you know, I, at the time, I mean, ESPN wanted me to cover it and write about it and all that. And, uh, I went, I think it was the first day of the giant series, like media day or whatever. And I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle like the stress I couldn't handle, like, you know, knowing that I'm walking around with a sort of time bomb inside me, if you will. Um, it was rough. And so I literally left that day. I didn't write anything. And I told my editor, I'm like, look, I'm like, for whatever reason, like, I can't, I can't cover this. I'm like, I can watch it on the couch. If you want me to write from home, I will, but it was just too much to be there in that sort of a situation. So 
so yeah, so I watched on TV and then it turned out that my like pre-surgical tests were in Cleveland uh, when games one and two were going on. So we went to game one. Uh, the day of game two, I was pretty out of it. So we didn't make it. We watched that in the hotel and then, you know, watched the rest of the series on TV and, you know, hugged my daughters and it was all over and, and it was amazing. And literally, I mean, if I remember correctly, the World Series ended on Wednesday, the parade was Friday. Uh, I was on a plane that landed in Cleveland Sunday night and rolling into surgery Monday morning, talking smack to all the nurses and doctors that the Cubs had won and the Indians had lost. So, so for you, it was well worth it. Like, like this, this yeah. risk that you took was worth it. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm here to talk about it now. So for sure, I mean, if it would have gone the other way, I'm not sure it would have been, but it was just, like I said, it was just something that I wanted to experience like a normal fan. And, and I'll say too, like, you know, if they would have said you absolutely need to be here tomorrow or there's a high probability that you're not going to make it, I would have gotten on the plane and gone. But when they said I'll probably be OK, you know, that was that was good enough for me. I, so. I it was a very strange experience 2016. And I think it's one of my favorite experiences as someone who does this for a living. And the reason why it was so strange is obviously I'm a White Sox fan. Right. But. I got tasked with covering the Cubs World Series. And I was doing snippets on the Cubs pregames. I had my own segment on the Cubs pregames, which was wild. Like, it was really wild. And honestly, like, I have so much respect for the people that were running the Cubs back then. Because whether it was being able to do an hour-long sit-down with Theo or doing the Madden show or whatever, no one ever over there ever gave me shit about that. I mean, Joe used to make fun. Like, he he said that it would be hilarious if they won another one, he'd want me to have a ring just because. <laughs> He's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to wear it? Are you going to display it? Like, all of that. But – that what what I found amazing was before game six, I started doing stuff from around Wrigleyville because the games were in Cleveland. And right. I was amazed by all of the people who were writing the messages. You remember on, on the building yeah, with Chuck? Yeah, on the wall. Yeah, for sure. Like yep. that amazed me. And being able to talk to people and how the communal aspect of that, where Friend of mine, I don't mean to name drop because I know that you can name drop with, with the best. Like, you know all the people. Jake Johnson is a friend of mine. Like, we've become friends. And he yep. told me that he was watching it from the cemetery. He's listening to it from the wow. cemetery. And he's not the only one. I've heard multiple stories of people listening or watching the game with their dead relatives. And... Mm -hmm. I feel like I was able to cover something that I, I – it was hard to fathom what it would look like and then being in the middle of that celebration of it, which seemed to go on for at least a month over in Wrigleyville, <laughs> was dope. Like it was – so what was it like for you to know that you had this other thing that you were dealing with and that you needed to get taken care of, but walking into it after that incredible way that they won and then the, the post-celebration. So it was, it was absolutely surreal in that, you know, the, the more success the Cubs had that postseason, which is all I wanted, was another day closer to me having my chest cut open. And so there was this dynamic of, like, 
obviously I'm thrilled to death. Obviously I want them to win the whole darn thing and they have the best chance they've probably had in my lifetime. But I also know that the closer that comes, the closer I am to surgery. Um, and so, you know, when, when it got to, when it got to game seven, I mean, that day, that day was insane, Lawrence. I mean, I remember waking up and being like, by the time I go to bed tonight, the Cubs are either going to win the world series or lose it in game seven. I mean, I'm literally covered in goosebumps now just saying that, you know, I, I remember, you know, I took the garbage out that day, uh, not garbage day. You know, my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I, and she's like, it's not garbage. I was just, I was so in my head. And then finally, you know, sat down on the couch and it was amazing to have, you know, my two daughters with me. I think my youngest was two at the time and my oldest was uh, 11. And so to be able to share it with them, to be able to see the little one, you know, singing go Cubs go. She's got no idea what the heck's going on. Um, you know, and then it's funny, you know, the, the game ends and, and I had this bottle of champagne that I opened and you know, I tried to pass it to my daughter and she's like, dad, I'm 11 years old. I'm not drinking champagne. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, it's kind of a special thing, but I get it right. But, 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 but Lawrence, we, we had, uh, you know, we, 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 my wife and I are people who don't believe in letting your kids sleep with you. Um, and so, and that night we all fell asleep in the bed watching all the post game. And I distinctly remember rolling over and waking up at like 4 a.m., and, you know, there's, there's four of us in a king size bed and I look up on the TV and, you know, it was highlights, there was a replay or whatever, but it was Theo in the clubhouse and champagne flying around. And I remember thinking to myself, like, holy crap, this really happened. Um, and then from, from kind of from that moment when I woke up that day, you know, my, my editor's like, you got to write about this. And I'm like, you know, nobody wants to read about, you know, my surgery. She's like, no, you really need to write about it. And, and I'll tell you, Lawrence, I mean, in the 20, whatever, two years, 20 years, I worked at ESPN, writing hasn't always come easy for me, like a lot of people. I sat down and wrote that story in about 20 minutes, um, which is unfathomable for me. And I sent it to my editor and it went up and then it became this like viral firestorm of like the front page of CNN as ESPN writer postponed surgery to watch the World Series. And people I've you know, never imagined or calling me to see how I'm doing. And, and even after my, I mean, you know, I, I get rolled into surgery and, and the surgeon who did it as a very well-renowned surgeon from South Africa, not the biggest of sports guys. He comes in, he comes into the operating room and I'm laying there and they're just about ready to give me, um, you know, the anesthesia. And he said uh, something along the lines of like, you know, heck of a story you wrote, man, like congrats to your Cubs. And I'm like, this is crazy. Um, and then afterwards, I mean, so many people reached out and called and, you know, uh, you know, I got a ball behind me that, that Tony Rizzo signed. That's like, you know, two way in the ultimate fan. And like, it was, it was surreal. It was, it was crazy. What's recovering from open heart surgery. Like, uh, it sucks. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's several months of, um, taking three steps forward to take two steps back. You know, you have days where you think you're kind of over the hump and you're doing well. And then the next day you're, you're sore and exhausted and miserable. The thing that stuck with me was uh, the fatigue. I mean, you know, I uh, uh, stayed at the hotel near the Cleveland clinic. I was, I was out of the hospital on Friday that week. I had to stay at the hospital or stay at the hotel through the weekend. 
Monday morning was a checkup, then we flew home. And I remember, you know, staying in this hospital, the walk from, because they had a wheelchair the whole time, but then the walk from the elevator to our room, which couldn't have been, I don't know, 50 feet, was exhausting. I mean, I, 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 I needed to like lay down and take a nap afterwards. Wow. And you just slow, you slowly build up after that. Um, and then coming home, I mean, flying home, exhausting. I remember the drive home from Midway and like every bump that we hit on 55 was like, uh, uh, like just, you know, painful. And, but, you know, once you get through it and, and, you know, there were some, uh, professional athletes that have had the same procedure that I have, that I had. And so I honestly like look to them, uh, as inspiration and like, look, like they went back to their sports and they're doing great. And so I can do this. Um, and then it was all good. You know, by the time the spring rolled around, I was pretty much back to normal doing my thing. So what, how, what were the darkest moments of that? Yeah. I mean, there were, you know, I remember, I remember being home for about a week or two and laying in bed and talking to my wife and just being like, I'm beyond exhausted. You know, I can't go upstairs or downstairs without it just completely knocking me out. Um, I was in pain. Um, I would have fevers that spiked, uh, that would scare me. And, you know, do I have an infection? What's going on? Um, you know, it, it, you just, you just worry, you just worry about what, what, what's going on inside you and how it's all taking or not taking. Um, and I, and I remember there was one time where, you know, they give you the number, like, you know, whatever, like 1-800, uh, you know, Cleveland clinic, whatever, if you need, if you need, if you have any questions while you're getting better. And there was one time where we pulled the phone out and called them. And I was like, I'm miserable. And I just don't know uh, if I'm going to get better. And they were like, listen, it's 100% normal. Um, what you're going through is what everybody goes through. All your scans, all your tests are as good as they can possibly be. Trust the process and you'll be fine in the end. Uh, and they were right. So I think that you're a terrific storyteller. Like, I appreciate that. Your work is really amazing. And it's also very human. Like, obviously, you telling your own story. Like, that's that's something that, you know, a lot of writers aren't even allowed to do. But you seem to want to find the humanity in the stories that you write. So where does that come from? Oh, that's a fascinating question. You know, I I think from an early age... I was always fascinated by athletes and why they were able to do what they're able to do. Um, you know, I've always held the belief that, look, you know, Michael Jordan is the greatest athlete in my opinion of our generation, but I believe that there are other athletes that we don't know that were born with as much talent as Michael Jordan had, but there are a series of reasons things he went through as a child, uh, his makeup as a person that pushed him to maximize the abilities he was given. And I was always fascinated by that. And the more I got into, you know, writing stories and interviewing athletes and learning more about them, you know, almost all the great ones have something very deep, very personal that's pushed them to the top of the mountain 
Um, you know, Michael Phelps is, is the best example I can give. I got to know Michael real well. When I first met him, I couldn't stand him. Um, and over time, uh, you know, he became more mature. I understood him better. And he opened up about issues with his dad. And then, you know, being put on top of the pedestal at an early age and how he dealt with that and struggled with that. And then you understand like, okay, you know, these are human beings just like us. There's a reason why, you know, in, you know, in the, in the Olympics in London, you know, Phelps struggles with everything he's got going on. He's struggling in his life and he comes back four years later in Rio, he's older and supposedly slower and he's better. It's because he made peace with, who he was with his family and things like that. And I just, I've always been fascinated by that part of the athlete. Was there a light that clicked on for you? Like when you're, you're like, okay, you're seeing the industry zig and then you decide to zag in your storytelling. Was there something that, that opened up that world of telling stories that way to you? I think, I don't know if there was a, uh, one moment, but I'll tell you, I mean, when I started at ESPN, you know, somebody pulled me aside and said, you're going to need to pick a beat. You're going to need to decide as a whatever 23 year old kid has been given this golden ticket to ESPN. Are you going to cover college football? Or do you want to cover the NFL? What is going to be your thing? Um, and I never wanted to do that. I wanted to just tell great stories wherever they were. And, you know, I had an editor that gave me that freedom. Um, and I remember at an, at an, at an, Early time in my career, Lawrence, I got sent to cover, I think it was the A's and the Yankees in like a division series. And I remember being in Oakland and it might, it might've even been like my first fall at ESPN. And my editor called me and said, listen, your job today is to take me somewhere in that Coliseum that nobody else is going to go and tell me a story about today's game that nobody else is going to have. And he's like, if you swing and miss, I don't care. He says, but I don't want the same game story, sidebar, whatever, that everyone else is going to write. And so that ability to have that freedom to do that allowed me to look in different places. Um, and then with that, the other thing, Lawrence, is in its simplest form, writing for the internet, I didn't have a deadline like all the newspaper guys did back then. You know, there was a lot more freedom that they all had to get a get quick quote and get out of there. Well, you know, I could follow, you know, David Justice to his car and, you know, BS with him about what had happened in that game. Um, and that helped as well. So I think that led me to look in different places. And then I just continued to be fascinated by what I discovered and, and, and kept doing that. When you're having this conversation with your editor, I mean, obviously, like, yeah, you're there ESPN. You're also super young when, when, and, and, and inexperienced. Yeah. Were, were you, did you feel pressure? To go, oh man, I, I gotta choose my I gotta choose my destiny right now at 23 years old. Um, I didn't. I don't think I really realized it at the time. You know, the, the only time I really re distinctly remember feeling pressure, feeling uncomfortable. You know, that same fall, you know, I went to Yankee Stadium to cover uh, same series or the next series, whatever it was, my first time, and I walked into the media room at Yankee Stadium for a Yankees playoff game in the old building, you know, in the Bronx. And I opened the doors and like, in my mind, it's a lot more dramatic than I'm sure it was, but in my mind, like it's this like smoke filled room with all these like grizzled legendary New York media scribes and the door opens and they look at me 
And they're like, who the hell is this kid? Right. And I, like I said, I'm sure it wasn't dramatic, but I felt that way. And then I'm walking around trying to find a place to sit. And it was like being like the outcast in the cafeteria where they're all like sliding. There's stuff like taken, taken, taken. And then honestly, I got, you know, my mentality I thought was kind of like, all right, F you guys. Like, you're going to be like that? Well, I'm going to beat you. Like, I don't care that you've, you know, whatever, written for the Post for 25 years. I'm going to go write a better story than you did. And then I just kind of went to my own insular world, didn't talk to those people, did my thing, and in my mind, did everything I could to try to kick their butts. Man, I mean, that's, I think that's a, a it's hard. Like, it's an intimidating place for a young person yeah. when you go into it. And then you'll see... Now we're talking about people that you've seen on television or on radio or you've read yeah. their byline and, and you're like, oh, my God, am I worthy of trying to tell the stories of these games along with the legendary people who've already told these stories? For sure. For sure. What's the relationship like or how important is it, the relationship between a writer and an editor? Oh, it's, it's, it's right up there with the relationship between uh, a husband and a wife. I mean, I, in my, in my time at ESPN, I had some not as great editors and I had for the last, whatever it was, 10, 12 years, an absolutely incredible, someone that you can trust and that trust goes both ways. And so when she would come to me with an idea that I didn't see, I could tell her like, I don't see it. I don't, I don't know what's the story here. And she could We'd have a talk about it. We'd have a, you know, maybe a, a, I wouldn't say heated discussion, but a conversation that would lead to either not doing the piece or a better piece in the end. And on the flip side, she could come to me and say, that's not good enough. And an editor that you don't respect, you might have a hard time digesting that. But with her, I knew where it came from. Um, and it totally pushed me. You know, a, a quick funny story, Lawrence, when she first started at ESPN, um, her name is Jenna Janvey. She came from the Charlotte Observer. And I, my, the first story I pitched to her was a piece about um, a high school football team at the top of Alaska in Barrow, Alaska. Um, it's been done by NFL Network now, and I'll keep it, but we were kind of the first ones to do it. So I pitched her this idea. I want to go to the top of Alaska and tell the story of the first Arctic high school football team in America. And she looks at me and she says, you're absolutely nuts. We can't go to Alaska. And I said to her, I said, no, no, I go, you know, Okay. And I went and talked to, to like, her, like her boss and, and they were like, absolutely, let's do this. And so we joke about it now. And she's like, look, I came from Charlotte. Like the budget was a little bit different than what we had at ESPN. right? <laughs> and, that, and that piece, you know, one of those three trophies that, that are behind me are from that story. So, uh, so we laugh about that. Yeah. That's so dope. What was that experience like? What was it like to be at the top of the world? Oh my gosh. It was insane. You know, I went, I was living out East in Connecticut at the time. And I flew in July uh, from whatever, from JFK across to, you know, Seattle, Fairbanks, I think, and then the puddle jumper up to Barrow. And I will tell you, I remember standing at football practice. There's no grass. It's all like rock, gravel, tundra, right? Kids are tackling on gravel. They're all bloody. Lawrence, it was like 30 degrees in July. It's the coldest I've ever been in my life. Like out any Chicago day of 20 below with whatever wind chill, that for whatever reason, coming from like the 90s of July and being dropped in the top of Alaska, the winds are howling off the yes, Arctic Ocean. I was freezing, freezing. Um, but it was such a wild place, it was so different than what I had known. Um, the people were so friendly, the 
the Inuits and their lifestyle. I mean, you know, the last, all, all I really wanted when I was there, I really wanted to see a polar bear. And the last night, sure enough, like, you know, there's like the buzz starts in town, there's a polar bear on the beach. And so our photographer and I like race down to the beach and like, sure enough, there is this massive white polar bear. You know, we got within, I don't know, I'd say maybe like 40 yards. There's kind of a half circle around the bear. There's a, a few folks there with shotguns in case the bear like gets aggressive. And I'm like, this is unlike anything you see in and around suburban Chicago. We, you know, like <laughs> we, we play football, we play football on grass. Okay. Like there's no one on the school bus holding a shotgun in case a polar bear attacks a kid walking from the bus to the front door of their house. Like it was crazy, you know, and then the whole backstory, like, you know, not to get too into it, but basically this was a, this, there was a guy who had moved up there from Wyoming. I think it was Wyoming as became superintendent. His son was a high school uh, athlete and he wanted his son to play football. And so he made this pitch that football could help save this community and keep kids away from drugs and the whole thing and got it approved. And by golly, at a cost of, I don't remember, it was super expensive. They played football, you know, and like they had to ship up all the equipment. Like there's no roads there. Uh, everything is flown up or on a barge. Like it's crazy, crazy, Man, crazy. That, that, yeah. that life experience has got to be an amazing thing yeah. to, to to are you a traveler are you someone who likes to travel i do i loved it especially when somebody else is paying for it well there's no doubt about that you know if yeah. it's free it's yeah. me like that's that's, yeah. that's a that's a very very good thing was it always writing that you wanted to do um after i realized i wouldn't be an athlete yes okay so so we're all told right that that line from from the movie is true we're all told that we can't play the child's game when were you told I mean, you know, I, I keep coming across for whatever reason in, in the drawers, my like evaluation sheet from um, Michael Jordan basketball camp, um, which I, I don't know. It's like, did like you play? Grade. Yeah, you played against Jordan, right? As a 12 year old. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So I got my little evaluation sheet and like, you know, it was like, I mean, basically I was like the like hustling, rebounding, like blue collar white dude. Is basically what my sheet said. Like, can't shoot, can't dribble, slow, um, but really hustles a lot and plays great defense. I mean that that is always upsetting to hear that. That, that I got <laughs> I got mine after college. Mine was in oh. in baseball, and so I I tell the story all the time. I'm sure House of L listeners are sick of hearing it, but I got invited to one of those regional tryouts. Yeah. Okay, and. This was after I was done with college. I kind of made up my mind on what I was going to do next. And they put you through the drills. I don't know if it's still this way, but in 1997, it was this way. The first thing they have you do is you run a 60. They want to know you need to run a 60 under eight seconds. And I was like, oh, I was a catcher for a big portion of high school and college. I was like, okay, well, that'll be that. I'll go and do this, and then they'll send me (laughs) home. I apparently had a spasm of speed and <laughs> I, I ran it under eight seconds, but it was, oh it was eye opening to me that half the people that I was there with were immediately sent home. Wow. Yeah. So then they did that. Then we went to fielding and I knew I wasn't going to catch in the pros. So I also played infield. So they have everyone line up at shortstop. 
And they're like, okay, we want to see you make throws. I survived that. I fielded the ball cleanly, and I made good throws. Half of the people went home again. Then we got to hitting. And then, Wayne, I went home. That's amazing. I went home. But you know what was great? Like it was incredibly like satisfying to go, I've taken this as far as I can take it. And I know that I'm I know I don't have to wonder if I was good enough. I know now that I was not good enough. And I know it for a fact. Man, I'm sorry. No, I, I can hear you now. Can you hear me still? Okay. okay. Yeah, I wanted to hear the rest of that story. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> I just know that I've I took baseball as far as I could take it. And I'm really right. happy that I did. So it, it's it's nice that when you you're you're told and you know, like that it's it's a, it's a, a satisfying feeling when you know. Yep. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to know more about you at the Jordan camp and specifically being able to say, I play basketball against Michael Jordan. Yep. So, um, you know, this was like the old, like legendary Elmhurst college camps that I was super lucky to go to one year. My parents gave it to me. I think it was my birthday present. And, um, and yeah, so one of the days Michael's teaching the triple threat position and, and Michael would like come in and out and, you know, I get it, man. Like he was God back then. I think this was, I think it was 1990. Cause I don't think they had won a title yet, but still, I mean, Michael around here was God. Right. And so everybody's kind of sitting like a half circle uh, around the basket or on the three point line. And Michael uh, basically is like, okay. Um, you know, he explained the triple threat and you can shoot, you can dribble, you can pass, blah, blah, blah. And he asked for a volunteer um, to help, you know, show you know help 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 him so everybody's hand goes up and for whatever reason he picks me and so i go out there and you know basically like triple threat like am i gonna run or shoot or pass you know michael jordan has no idea and you know i make this fake to the left and i go to my right if i remember correctly and i go around him and i like put up this like circus layup and it goes in and i'm like yeah right now i got a little bit of a little bit of strut in my step i had not gotten the camp evaluation until after this had happened lauren so i still thought i could play okay and so again if i think i remember i think i was ready to go and sit down and michael says something like you know no you got to play defense now young man and he proceeds to 
you know, like jab step, jab step, you know, like, and I, I mean, literally, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I was almost falling over every single jab step. And, you know, he puts on a move, goes around me. And I, you know, I think he's like slams it home. And, and kind of that was that he kind of put me in my place. Right. And I, and I, and as I got older and looked at Michael more for the complicated human he is than just a basketball player, the moment made complete sense to me. Cause I'm like, of course, Michael's not going to let this like, you know, suburban kid score on him and think he's the man. Like Michael, no, you got to play defense. Now I got to score on you and remind you that I'm Michael Jordan. Like, right. So uh, in my mind, I like to feel like uh, he was threatened by me and put me in my place. <laughs> I think that's a good way <laughs> to do it. Um, what was the best part of working at ESPN? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I would probably say it was, what I touched on earlier and the freedom that they gave me and the freedom I was allowed to have because, you know, I worked there at a time when um, I wouldn't say, you know, it, it was okay to make a mistake, you know, th that we weren't hamstrung financially and things in a way where if they spent whatever, five grand on me to do a story and it never came to be that that was a colossal, colossal problem. And I think that freedom to know that um, your place, the, the place had your back and would allow you to pursue things that, you know, maybe wouldn't always come to fruition was, was very, very, uh, it was special. I mean, you know, and I, I, you talk to people that work at other places and, and there weren't many people who had that. And I think that was a great thing. And, and, and then with that, I mean, you know, when I look back on the roster of people that, that I worked with, I mean, when I started, you know, I was kind of the first uh, feature writer for the website, really, when I decided I didn't want to have a beat. And then over the years, I mean, all the people, you know, I, I mean, I could, we could spend 40 minutes going through the list of people that I worked with who are just incredible, incredible. And, and with that, you know, Lawrence, I mean, it wasn't my favorite day when they let me go, but at the same time, you know, I'm not an idiot. And I kind of saw what had happened to Andy Katz and John Clayton and Jason Stark and people who I have an amazing amount of respect for. And I looked at it as kind of like being an NFL head coach. And I was like, I think someday my phone's going to ring and they're going to tell me the, the same thing that, you know, that they tell Matt Nagy basically. Um, and sure enough, you know, that day happened. Like I said, not, not that it makes it any, any easier, but it wasn't like this coming out of left field craziness. What do you think of where the industry is overall? It doesn't have to be ESPN specific. Like, I don't want to get you in trouble with them, but where the industry is at large, when it comes to not having, I think this is, this is my bias I don't think that there are enough spaces where writers can really tell some of these stories. Am I wrong? Yeah. Are, are, are there more spaces than I'm giving it credit? Or do you see that as being a problem in the industry? No, I would completely agree with you. Um, completely agree with you. And the problem is, look, A, it's expensive. And B, while you and I love those stories, you know, while the students in your class love those stories, the numbers for the bean counters don't equate to the expense. 
enough. And that's why they, you know, pull back um, and don't do as much. I think it's absolutely, you know, um, a missed opportunity. Um, but with that, you know, I look at the advancement of the quote unquote, you know, game story of team coverage. It is light years better than it was, you know, when I started in the early 2000s, you know, and, and, and people finally understanding, you know, like a lot of the stuff that the athletic does, you know, I look at, you know, the, you know, Sahadov and, and Mooney with the Cubs, like the stuff that those guys do to, to literally, you know, every day almost step back and say, here's what this all means. And here's what's going on in Des Moines or South Bend. And here's why the Cubs are approaching this offseason this way. Here's why Ryan Poles is not signing anyone of, of, you know, great significance. Like, and that's always been, why has always been the fa most fascinating to me. So I think while in some regard, there aren't as many of those great, um, you know, uh, really deep uh, feature stories on people. I mean, there are feature stories, but they always, they feel very surface to me. I think the quality of the beat reporting is, destroyed what we had a while ago me too and and you're right to point out those guys and and the athletic what they're doing is amazing i think that the the sporting public also now has a, an appetite for more granular coverage yes. of things and i think that that's a wonderful thing for all of us because it allows us to to dig into it into a way that that before it would have been like tossed out, like the the concept of of doing something that uses a different different metrics than batting average, runs batted in, and home runs, and then use that to explain, like you said, the why, like what well, the the big why of it. I love that we're in that place where I can have that conversation, and the audience understands why I'm having that conversation. Yep. Yep. And I think that's, you know, that is a whole nother level of sports fandom, right? Like, like, I mean, look, like you take last summer, for example, in Chicago, obviously there's a ton of Cub fans who are, you know, besides themselves that three superstars got traded. There's also a um, easily, and I would say easily, there is a somewhat digestible explanation for why that happened. You may not agree with it. You may not like it, but it wasn't just, um, you know, we don't want to spend any money anymore. Like there are reasons the Cubs did those things. And, you know, I was thinking about it earlier today for some random reason, like, like the, 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 the depth of knowledge that the fans have now about why things happen is just so incredibly interesting to me um, that, that, you know, like, look, there's a reason that, Nikki two strikes is in that lineup and it's not a bunch of guys who are home run or bust. You know, there, there's a reason these things happen. Um, so anyway, I, I, just, I think it's, a, I think it's a great time to be a fan who really cares, who really wants to know how and why things work. Um, and I, you know, the, the quip I had at the end is I wish it was still a great time to be a, a long form feature writer. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Well, what's next for you? Like what's the, the next thing? So I'm in this weird world where um, I consider myself Bobby Bonilla, where ESPN has paid me to not do anything, like, for a while. Happy Bobby um, Bonilla Day. 
right? Um, which at first is, is you're like, this is amazing. I'm going to get paid to do whatever I want. Nah, nah, nah. And, and with COVID, it's been amazing to be able to spend so much time at home with my daughters and getting ready for school. And I mean, it's been awesome. Um, having said that, you know, after 20 nonstop years of hopping on and off airplanes and traveling the world and, you know, whatever, 48 states and telling these stories, um, I'm chomping at the bit to get ready to do something new when I'm, you know, sort of let out of jail again. So I don't know what that'll be. You know, Lawrence, when I, when, you know, when I first got let go, I was like, I don't want to be in sports media anymore and da 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 da. And it's, you know, I was kind of a little bit bitter and angry. Um, you know, there's part of me that thought about going into politics and such an important thing that we need to have more, you know, transparency and, and good coverage around, I feel like. But, you know, as time's going on, I mean, I've come to this realization. It's probably not that surprising, but sports is my passion. You know, the wall behind me is covered in basketball shoes. You know, I'm sitting here looking at a poster of Erlocker, a poster of Jordan, you know, like Hayden Fry's behind me. Like, I mean, my whole life has, has been about loving sports and telling those stories. So I hope to be able to, you know, tell stories for another publication or write some books or do more TV stuff. Um, you know, I, we'll just have to see what opportunities are out there when, uh, when I'm let out of Bobby Bonilla jail. couple more things I want to ask you. You're good. One, what do you think makes a good feature writer? Oh, that's a great question. Um, wow. You know, my first gut reaction to that, my gut reaction to that question, Lawrence, is someone um, who is fearless. And what I mean by that is someone who isn't afraid to ask the hard questions, to probe the hard topics, to, you know, write the hard things that need to be written. Um, you know, when I started, uh, I had very thin skin and, you know, I didn't like when athletes didn't like my stories. And over time, I came to the realization of if an athlete likes your story too much, you didn't do it right. Um, not that it's all about digging up dirt or anything like that, but, you know, to me, the greatest compliment, the greatest compliment I feel like I've ever gotten as a writer. I did a story about a guy from Des Moines an attorney who um, left his family for a year to uh, accomplish what he called the world triathlon. Okay. And the challenge was to swim from the beginning of the English channel, or I'm sorry, from the beginning of the river Thames, all the way across England, swim the English channel, bicycle from France to like India. I want to say, if I remember run from India to uh, Nepal and climb Everest was the finale. Okay. And so I went with him on part of his journey and, and wrote about this very, very complicated man, right? Like you talk about a fascinating character and the story wasn't always kind to him. And I remember him saying to me, I don't like the way I come across in your story, but you've helped me realize that that's me. Mm. That's who I am. And I'm just like, I mean, that's, that's the best thing anybody can tell you. So you know, so being, being fearless in that way, I'll, I'll tell you one other story that'll be of interest to your audience. You know, if you remember, I'm the one many years ago who did the Bartman story. Yep. And 
I hated that assignment. I hated it. It was miserable. I didn't want to do it. And when I wrote my first draft, um, it got sent back to me that it was beyond terrible. And my editor said at the time, basically like, stop messing around and tell the story of what happened. Tell the story that you told me about sitting in the car outside his house and all the stuff that, that, that happened. Tell that story. Get out of the way. Stop thinking, what are people going to think? And just write it. And so I was, I was in London at the time covering Wimbledon, covered Wimbledon all day, went back to my hotel room and all night wrote this, you know, the new draft. And I don't think, I don't think they touched the new draft. Now, obviously the story was incredibly polarizing, but that was a story of what happened. And once you're, once you get over that fear, get over that concern of what people are going to think, what people are going to say, you've got great work. Um, and it's the same thing when you ask difficult questions, you know, it, I've always believed that asking the question that makes you uncomfortable is the best question you can ask as an interviewer, because that is the most human thing about that person. Um, whatever they've had to go through that, you know, you want to learn about is, um, is going to be so incredibly compelling. So you have to get over that fear of, like I said, interviewing when you're writing all those things being fearless makes you in my opinion a great storyteller is there any interview in your entire career that you wish you could go back and do oh my gosh darn that's a good question i'm sure there are i mean i'm trying to think like i'm trying to think like earlier in my career when i knew when i knew less you know when i when i had that <laughs> When I had that anxiety, Whew. I mean, if the answer is no, the answer is no. I don't. There, the, the answer is yes, but I, I don't know if I can have one. If I have one off the top of my head, I mean, you know, and, and, and you know, with that, Lauren, the other thing, you know, the great thing about ESPN, right? I would have so much time to work on these stories that I could go hang out with an athlete and and screw it up and not get anything, and then you know, I could go see them two weeks later at another game race you know, whatever it is and, and cover up my mistakes, if you will, or have a better approach. And that's obviously something that not, not a lot of people get to do. I just thought one other thing I want to tell you, this is funny. One of my favorite stories talk about being fearless. I'm still in college and I was stringing for the Washington post and they sent me to uh, Comiskey to do a piece on James Baldwin. James Baldwin had started that year like nine and zero or something like that. You remember that? Yes. And so, okay. And so I had done my research and I had realized in my little research that like Frank and James Baldwin were like, were like tight. Okay. And so I go into the clubhouse uh, before the game, don't know anybody, college kid. I go right up to Frank and I'm like, Hey Frank, I'm like, you know, Wayne Dre's Washington post, blah, blah, blah. And I, I feel like this like collective gasp in the room that like unbeknownst to me, you don't go up to Frank really before the game and plan on like sitting down and hanging out with Frank. And he kind of looks up at me, you know, the, the massive figure that he was again, I'm fearless. I don't know. And that was fearless from, from inexperience. And he looks at me and he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, well, I'm doing this piece on James, you know, for the post. He's like, Oh man. He's like, sit down, grab the chair. Dude. He talked to me for like 20 minutes. Wow. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Everybody looking around. And like, obviously, I mean, being from Chicago, you know, I, I know most, not all the Chicago media, you know, they don't know me, 
but I'm like, this is crazy. And, and I found out later, like somebody told me in the dugout, like, dude, Frank never talks like that before a game. I was like, well, this is my lucky day. It's a lucky day for <laughs> sure. Was there ever, yeah. be, because you had the skills early on in your career, like, did you ever feel any like wunderkind pressure? I don't know. I mean, I think I was lucky in that internally at ESPN, I mean, first of all, right, I was writing for the website, which in early 2000s was like, we were in the basement and nobody paid attention to it. I mean, Lawrence, literally ESPN.com was in the basement. And like, I mean, I remember like my first fall, we could not get a credential to a Tennessee, Florida football game because we were a website. ESPN.com. We had to get a TV credential and like piggyback on TV. And so because of that, internally, I wasn't any special thing. I was just, you know, a young kid. It wasn't like, I mean, even back then, I'm trying to think like Stark might have been there and he's super supportive. Andy Katz was there. He was great. Like everybody was supportive. It wasn't like I was, you know, all of a sudden like the Washington Post newsroom and like it's Kornheiser and Wilbon and Sally Jenkins and all these people, you know, looking at me like, who am I? Um, so I never really felt that way. And then, you know, I did a lot of college football early and that those people were all super supportive and welcoming. Um, other than that, you know, Yankees media room, the one night I really never felt much of that. Well, man, I'm, I'm really, I'm real happy that we connected, you know, like sure. it, it's weird. Like, especially in, in the era of COVID, like I got all these, these friends that I have on Twitter and on Instagram right. and I'm like, man, I kind of want to hang out with them in real life. Right. And, and now, you know, we're getting closer to that being more sustainable. At least I hope um, that that is the case. But I, I've always loved your work, and I, I consider it a high compliment that you actually like my work. Like, like finding out that you were a fan of my work was like, what? Like, that's impossible. Like, that's an impossible thing. So you being available to come and be on the podcast is super dope. And I really appreciate it. And I want to say thank you. Dude, thank you, man. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I've been a fan for a long time. And I didn't know if I was able to shout that or not when I had, you know, ESPN next to my name, uh, what the rules were. But um, but at some point I was like, I don't even care, right? Like, I mean, the work that you guys do over there and so many people do in this city, you know, uh, you know, I grew up. I'm like you. I mean, I grew up, you know reading the Tribune, reading the Sometimes and, you know, watching Bernie go after Jay and, you know, all, all the history we, we have in the city of incredible media. Um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I consider myself part of it, even though I'm sort of uh, in, a, in a weird way, not if that makes sense, but I've always felt like part of that. So uh, like I said, you guys do awesome work. You, you I appreciate immensely, man. What a wonderful conversation with Wayne Dre's, man. That was it's weird, right? Aurelio's, it's the sauce. Like that's that's usually what my postscript is now. You should go get pizza from Aurelio's, and and you should hang out there and get the mushrooms too. They have good mushrooms at Aurelio's. Aurelio's.com. It's the sauce. You can find the closest Aurelio's near you at Aurelio's.com. It the sauce of this conversation is hearing the way that Wayne approaches doing stories. Literally the links that he will go to tell a good story. And when you read some of his stuff, like his back catalog of stuff that he's written for ESPN is ridiculous. 
and the stories that he's able to share so much so much interesting like looking for the interesting in what's in our sports world his approach inside of clubhouses and locker rooms and kind of bucking against the establishment to find his own space saying i can do i can do all the things that the people that are here asking questions of but do i want to do that or do i want to try and dig deeper do i want to try and make really meaningful relationships that allow me to allow the reader in that's what it's about i feel like i i got a real like there's some real gospel moments in there from wayne like hearing him discuss what it means to him to be in these spaces where he could tell stories. And you can tell that it's bothering him a little bit that he has to be on the bench for a little while, but at least he's getting paid to be on the bench. And that is a lot better than what happens to many of our, our brothers and sisters in this business. When things fall apart business wise, Sometimes you end up being stuck without a place to ply your trade and you're not getting paid for it, which for a lot of people is very upsetting and puts you in a really bad spot to make decisions on whether you're going to stay following your dream. But man, it's it's people like Wayne that I go, they they figured it out. Like he's got it right. And those experiences that he had in putting together his ESPN career, he'll have those stories forever. And that is top notch. Really, really top notch. I'm I'm so it, you know, the other thing that's that's interesting to me is that I have these friends that I've met along the way. Because I'm a fan of their work or they're a fan of my work. And they're like your internet friends. <laughs> and I feel like Wayne and I could like hang out and just shoot the shit. And it would be dope. Like just watch a game. It's crazy to me that one of the best things about the internet is the connectivity. Now, one of the worst things about the internet is also the connectivity. But when I get to chop it up with people that I like and respect and I find out that I wasn't crazy, like there's the concept of the best friend in my head. And then I find out I wasn't crazy in thinking, yeah, that person is like-minded to me. To be able to have that conversation with Wayne is just super dope, super, super dope. So I'm glad that he was available to do it. And I'm glad that you listened to the episode. Thank you so much for supporting all of our sponsors. Aurelio's, Aurelio's.com. Go get yourself some pizza. Folks over at Drizzly, use that promo code, man. Fast5, Drizzly.com. Download the app. Use the code Fast5 on your first order. And if you're buying Vincero, it's a great company that cares about the environment. 
So we thank them for helping us keep the lights on over here at House of L. We got new episodes coming up. New episode of Sports Adjacent is coming out. Make sure you check that out as well. I appreciate your support. I truly, truly do. I will talk to you next time. Hey!